So I'm just outside of Hagazian University. I'm at gate C. Through that gate, you're able to see this huge rocket. That's producer Tamara Rasamni. She's standing on Hamra Street in Beirut, and the thing she's talking about is an actual rocket. It stands about 15 feet tall. It's white with those small triangular wings coming out of the sides, and it's propped up like a statue. Its nose pointed up into the sky like it's about to launch into space. And I always wondered what that was, and um, I remember a specific time passing by it and kind of rolling my eyes, thinking it was some sort of celebratory remnants of the Civil War. But I really had no idea. Because, and it's not at all obvious from the street, looking through the fence of that university, what or why this rocket is. But there's a story behind it, and it starts with a man named Manug Manugian. Hello? Well, hello there. How are you? Oh, I am doing good. It's so good to see you. After all this time. Finally, right? Yeah. Yes, I can hear you very well. I can see you well. Perfect, perfect. Good. We spoke to Manug over Skype a few months ago when the world was in total lockdown, uh, so the audio is a bit scratchy. My name is uh, Manug Manugian. I'm a professor of mathematics at the University of South Florida. I'm also director of the STEM Education Center, as well as faculty advisor for the Society of Aeronautics and Rocketry here at USF. USF, or the University of South Florida, is where Manug has taught for 51 years. In 1935, he was born in the Armenian quarter of Old Jerusalem. It was a time when conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis was fairly intense. The empty streets of Jerusalem tell their own story of trouble. Terrorism here, as in Jaffa and Tel Aviv, has been the chief outward sign of a critical situation. This picture was taken soon after a gang of Jewish terrorists had made an attack on police headquarters in the center of Jerusalem, shooting it up with automatics and blowing it up with HE. A solution to the Palestine problem has still to be found. At present, Palestine contains about a million Arabs and half as many Jews. Jewish immigration continues at a fixed monthly rate. But the problem surely calls for settlement on the international level. Which meant that I couldn't go to school. I'd spent time reading about space exploration, science fiction. One of these books he read was Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon. The book was published in 1865, and it tells a story about a rocket launched out of a cannon to the moon. And Jules Verne's book, From the Earth to the Moon, is the book that got me fascinated with space. When I was in high school, I used to carve rockets flying on my desk, and that got me going. And I figured, okay, that's what I want to do. And so he does. Today, a story about a little-known time in history in one of the smallest countries in the Arab world, when a young professor and his students decide they're going to build a rocket and try to launch it into space. And they become the first ever to do so. 
I'm Hibba Fisher, and this is Kerning Cultures, stories from the Middle East and North Africa and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Here's Tamara. When Manouk finished high school in Jerusalem around the mid-1950s, he planned on going to the University of Texas. But one of his teachers from his school, the St. George's School, asked him if he'd like to stay and teach instead. And my family, of course, was very excited. They didn't want me to leave. And so I stayed behind and I taught for two years teaching math, physics, and chemistry, which happened to be the ingredients for launching rockets. He had met his wife-to-be, Josette Masson, who needed a tutor. Now, she was a very bright person, very, very bright. When we met, she said, listen, I hate math, physics, and chemistry. I said, what a beginning. (laughs) I said, I don't care what you pass. The only thing you're going to pass is math, physics, and chemistry. (laughs) And she did. She passed all three subjects. The two both had scholarships to attend universities in the U.S., Manoug at the University of Texas, Josette at Western College in Oxford, Ohio. So in 1956, they left Jerusalem to the U.S. And four years later, with scholarships in hand, we went back to Jerusalem and got married. It so happened that the president of an Armenian college in Beirut, Lebanon, known as Haigazian College, The president there contacted me, I don't know how he knew, and offered me a job to teach math and physics in Beirut at Haigazian University. At the time, it was only a college. So I I looked at uh, Josette and said, do you want to spend some time in Lebanon? She said, absolutely, yes. They all speak French anyway, so it'll be great. (laughs) (laughs) And um... She never taught me French, but that's okay. And that's how we ended up in Beirut. It was 1960. We got married one day, and two, three days later, we were in Beirut. I figured it's a perfect time for me to do what I've always wanted to do, and that is build and launch rocket to understand what space was all about. It used to be called the Science Club at Haigazian, and they asked me to be a game faculty advisor for the Science Club. And I figured, how can you possibly teach physics and mathematics without applications? And rocketry would be a perfect example. I said, on one condition, the condition being that I'll I'll be able to teach them how to build rockets. And that's how the Lebanese Rocket Society came to be. The Lebanese Rocket Society, which was originally called the Hagazian College Rocket Society, included Manoug Manougian as the faculty advisor and his students. Manoug asked that I include all their names in the story, so here it goes. Hampar Karagozian, Garo Basmajan, John Tilikian, Herair Kelechian, Michel Laddah, Simon Abrahamian, Herair Sahagian, Herair Antablian, and Girair Zinyan. And at the time that this university science club was attempting to launch a rocket into space, there weren't really accessible materials to build rockets, let alone fuel them. He asked us if we want to shoot a rocket and build it. I said, yeah, why not? 
This is one of the students from the Lebanese Rocket Society. My name is Rar Kalashian. We started going, he gave us some pointers, and we started working for about six months. We worked on uh, finding a proper rocket fuel, and we were experimenting with different fuel. Materials to build and fuel rockets weren't just readily available. Not even the Lebanese military had them. So Manoug and his students had to start from scratch using what they could find in regular stores, from finding materials and designing the rockets to actually creating, mixing, and testing the rocket fuel. For some context here, not only was an attempt to launch rockets into space unprecedented in the region, it was also pretty new for the entire world. The first actual rocket to reach space was by Germany in 1942, and in 1957, the first satellite, Sputnik, the race to put the first men on the moon is a race between the United States and Russia. Certain stages have to be accomplished before a moonshot, of course, and a Russian had already orbited the Earth when American astronaut Lieutenant Colonel John Glenn prepared for his attempt. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. On July 20th, 1969, man went to the moon. At the time when Manoug and his students hoped to create and launch rockets as far as possible into space, a human hadn't been on the moon yet. That didn't happen until 1969. We got into the chemistry books and looking into the fuels, different fuels and the information, trying to get as much information as possible from publications to what French, American, and Russian companies were using for their fuel, something that was more safe so we can mix it at home or at the school or without blowing ourselves up. <laughs> so you would do this at home? It wasn't just in the schools? Mostly it was we were doing in the lab, in the school. So the group of students would try different mixtures, compression levels, and different additives to burn faster or slower. Hirad recalls a funny story where even the college president's daughter had helped them mix the rocket fuel. And then the next thing I know is the president walks in there, he says, what are you doing there? Oh, he says, I'm helping them mix the uh, rocket fuel over here. He was kind of shocked a lot, but it was kind of funny. And I thought, this is something that has to stop. This is John Markarian in an interview from the 2012 film called The Lebanese Rocket Society. The film was directed by Joanna Hajituma and Khalil Jrej, and we'll be talking about it more later. I was very, very leery of the rocket project, but Manu insisted and assured me that this was being done for scientific study and had no intention of promoting violence. So with that, I was kind of dragged along to approve the project. Finally, we found out a combination that works. And then we started uh, shooting. 
small rockets. And so the group used his father's farm in the mountains of Lebanon to launch small rockets, testing different styles and combinations of fuel mixing. And as they learned which materials worked best, they started making and launching larger rockets. Up to 1962, the propellant was our propellant. We produced that. So fuel comes in different forms, mainly solid or liquid form. In this case, they were creating the solid form of rocket fuel. They'll come up with their arms covered with propellants while they were mixing them. Eventually, we stopped doing that so that the students who were not part of the club, we didn't want them to be dealing with propellants that might be dangerous. We had to come up with a chemical. I'll tell you what it is. It's what we do is uh, there's something. Yeah, we're not going to air that. To whoever is listening, Kerning Cultures does not promote the building of rockets or creation of rocket fuel. Don't try this at home. So they started off by using their own homemade propellant. And after testing smaller rockets, the first rocket they launched didn't really go as planned. It was in 1961 and the team had just prepared a nearly two meter long rocket, which is about six feet. They had invited faculty and about 200 students from the college to witness the launching. After scouting areas, they ended up picking somewhere remote in the mountains of Ain Saadi. They were in a valley and the rocket was pointed at this one mountain that they had already scouted. And around them, there wasn't really much else except other mountains. And at launching, the rocket, when it took off, instead of going in the direction we wanted to go, the launcher moved backwards because of the force So the rocket itself launched backwards, flying to a height of about a thousand meters in the opposite direction, passing a mountain. And they weren't sure what was behind it. So everyone just starts running up this mountain, trying to get over it to figure out where it landed and if there was any damage. And it ended very close to a church that was having uh, services. So when they all came out, they could see this item that's sitting in front of the church. Fortunately, the Lebanese in general were very happy to see us build these rockets. So they weren't upset. In fact, they congratulated us for being able to do this. Remember at the time, no Arab country had rockets, none. What happened was Egypt, tried to have rockets before the 1960s. What they did was bring in some German scientists to help them build rockets. You may have heard of Operation Paperclip, which was the secret operation in the U.S. after World War II to bring in about 1,600 German Nazis, German Nazi experts. So scientists, engineers, technicians, all under U.S. government contracts. One of these German Nazis, Kurt H. Debut, actually became the first director of NASA's Launch Operations Center. There's a picture of him sitting with U.S. President John F. Kennedy and Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson. And I mentioned this because something similar was happening in Syria and Egypt. In 1962, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser made a speech that Egypt had successfully completed tests of missiles that could reach, and I quote, south of Beirut, implying that they could reach Israel. And those rockets were actually built with the help of German scientists, Nazi German scientists, which is what Manoug is referencing. 
After that, Israel's Mossad launched Operation Democles, which was this covert campaign where Mossad targeted those Nazi scientists through letter bombings, kidnappings, and assassinations. They didn't last long because the Israeli killed many of them. So they all left. And so none of the Arab countries had rockets. So Lebanon was the first country to have rockets. However, these rockets, the first condition that I put in building rockets in in Lebanon was for space exploration and scientific understanding what rockets were all about. The first rule that I had is rockets for space exploration and not for wars. Though this was a historic moment in Lebanon, after nearly destroying a church, the government offered a safe launching site in Mount Sanin, a mountain in the northeast of the country that's most known for its water springs and hikes. By 1960, late 61, beginnings of 62, we needed support from the military's workshop because we didn't have enough area to uh, do what we were doing. And at that time, we had met the president of Lebanon. He invited uh, my students and I to the palace. There's this picture of Manoug and four students, Hirayr Kalashian being one of them, standing with Lebanon's president at the time, Fuad Shahab. They're all dressed in darker gray suits, and the president's wearing a full white suit. This is after we had launched several rockets, which were very successful, and everyone was very pleased with it. And the president gave us funding for the project and assigned Captain Wahabe to be the military support. So General Yusuf Wahabe was kind of the military point person in the group. In other words, he was a member of the Rocket Society. He kept in touch with us uh, and we kept in touch with him. And whenever we need to, to use the workshop, we were able to do it. The Lebanese military began attending the rocket launches and supporting the group. But Manouk's interests lay in space exploration and creating the foundation for a space program in the country, with aspirations similar to NASA. I asked Manouk what he thought about the military's involvement. I, of course, I was against that. I was against having weaponized systems in the, in the rocket. He understood that. By he, Manouk means General Wahbe. And he, uh, he said, OK, we'll still work on what you're doing. And we work together very well. And I don't blame him because his job is the military. Manouk mentions the threat of invasions by neighboring countries, which since the time of all of this in the 60s, has happened with both of Lebanon's neighbors, Israel and Syria. So I can, I can understand where the Lebanese military would say we need to defend ourselves. Defending ourselves means you have to have weaponized systems. Another really important person to mention who joined the group a little later in 1964 was Joseph Sfer, who operated the electronic sides of things, like the GPS of the rocket and making sure the group could track it. Joseph Sfer was an electronics expert, which came perfectly because that's when we started launching rockets with electronics equipment in them. Both General Wahbe and Joseph Sfer have passed away, so we weren't able to speak with them for this episode. Manoug and Joseph Sfer both expressed dreams of launching a satellite into space. And eventually they wanted to send a man into space. But at the time, Manoug was thinking of starting smaller. 
Can you tell me about Mickey the Mouse? Who's Mickey the Mouse and, <laughs> and your wife? Like, what happened with that? Oh, Mickey happened to be a mouse we were training. We decided to test and see how far can a mouse that we've been feeding for a while, how far can it go up and come back uh, unhurt? Mice before men, that's the big idea. And they selected Sally, Amy, and Moe to make the trip. Amy is saddled with an instrument to record her reactions during the space flight. They were placed in a miniature version of the sort of capsule that would be used for a man. The nose cone of an Atlas missile was to be the carrier. The point of departure was at Lake Canaveral in Florida. And now the time had come for the blast off. This is it, said the mice. So Manug and his students tried to do this with Mickey the mouse, but he needed a parachute to bring the mouse back. And so he went to Josette, his wife. So I tell uh, Josette, can you uh, put a parachute together? And she says, what do you need a parachute for? I said, well, you really don't care. Uh, You shouldn't care, but I just need a parachute. Of course, I wasn't going to not tell her. So I said, well, I have a mouse that I'd like to launch and bring him back safely. She said, over my dead body, she's, he's not going to fly on a, on a rocket. And she stopped me. And of course, I didn't say no to her. And uh, tells you how much she loved animals. She was crazy about animals. Manuk tells me his wife passed away two years ago. And... I can sense the love and awe in his voice when thinking back to moments with Josette. She truly was a very bright, beautiful woman. Uh, at one point, she was 30 years old at the time. Uh, this is years after our son was born and he was uh, of age, not to worry about. And so Josette came to me and said, you know, our son is grown up, so I need to do something. I said, okay, what do you want to do? She said, I want to dance. And I asked her, what kind of dance do you want to do? She says, ballet. I said, you're 30 years old, and you know that you cannot do ballet if you don't start when you're about eight or nine years old, because your feet can't take it. She said, that's what I want to do. Well, I said, okay, let's see. Do you want to go to, we have a school here at USF. We have a program for ballet. Why don't you take a course of ballet at USF? So she ended up going to a class at the University of South Florida, but didn't have any previous ballet experience and was sent away by the teacher. Manug, who worked at the university, called the chairman of the dance department, who he knew pretty well. I said, listen, if you don't let my wife take ballet, your students are not going to take mathematics. Of course, I was kidding with him. Five years later, She became so proficient in ballet, Josette decided to have her own studio. She opened her own studio. That's Josette. We'll be back after the break. When we left off, Manoug and his team continued to learn from their mistakes, launching more rockets and gaining more attention. After the church incident, they had a stable environment to launch rockets in, and in May 1961, launched a second rocket, which reached about 2,300 meters, which is about a mile and a half. The rocket had a sign on it that said HCRS, the Hagazian College Rocket Society. 
And so most of these rockets were named Cedar with a number corresponding to the type of rocket and sometimes letter like A, B, C for the trial of that type of rocket. The Cedar rockets technically start at Cedar 2, marking the moment the university group became a national one and go up to Cedar 8. Though the rocket started off small with the first rocket nearly 2 meters or 6 feet, by Cedar 8, the rocket was about 5.7 meters long, or 18 feet. In what's left of the pictures, you can see one of the Cedar rockets with Arabic written on it. Al-Eris 3, or Cedar 3, is written towards the top of the rocket. The rest of it is painted in red and white with a cedar tree giving ode to the Lebanese flag. Manoug, the students, and some military personnel stand in front of the rocket as it sits on an elevated launcher pointed at the sky and at the sea. There's a ladder in front of the rocket and some members of the group are standing on it or on top of it. Some smiling, some straight-faced, possibly looking a little terrified on the inside. 1962 is when our most beautiful two-stage rocket was. We had painted it beautiful colors. A two- or three-stage rocket ultimately means that there are two or three different parts of the rocket that break off as they're launched into the sky. This is mainly to lighten the rocket's load and make it go higher. And at the end of it, after the launching, it was very successful. This particular Cedar uh, 2C, because there were three two-stage rockets that we launched, Cedar 2A, 2B, and 2C. 2C was the most beautiful one we launched, worked perfectly, and the public was all there. By this point, many people had been hearing about the Lebanese Rocket Society. And the general public, students, military personnel, and embassy attaches attended the launchings. When the rocket launches successfully and falls to the sea, by the end of the launching, people were singing, cheering, and they even had a party afterwards celebrating. It was already late in the night and Manouk was getting ready to go home. Some Armenian guy whom I've never met came to me and said, I'd like for you to meet somebody who is very well off, who is interested in what you're doing. He'd like to support you. I'm always looking for people who are going to support us financially because we really needed money. We didn't have any. This was after party celebrations at about two in the morning. So Manoug was a little nervous since he didn't really know who this man was. He was told that the man comes from a certain country in the region, which he later found out was Kuwait, and that he wanted to congratulate Manoug on launching the rocket. I said, sure, okay, I'll do it. So he gets into the stranger's car and they start driving through the narrow streets of Beirut. I wouldn't be surprised if people wanted to get rid of me, especially I wouldn't be surprised if Israel would do that. But I didn't, I didn't really worry, so I went ahead and I got to this place. I knocked at the door. He says the door was part of a fur coat store. <laughs> what are we doing in a fur coat store? Anyway, turned out, to make a long story short, it was, he was the ruler of, of Kuwait. It's hard to confirm the story since all we have is Manoug's account of it. Manoug says the ruler congratulated him, they shook hands, and the ruler says he wants to support Manoug. So he offered to have him work on rocketry in Kuwait. What is Kuwait going to do with a rocket? It didn't make any sense for me. Remember, this is in 1962, and just a year earlier, in 1961, Kuwait gained independence. The country shares its borders with Saudi Arabia and Iraq, and since 1938, when oil was discovered in Kuwait, Iraq claimed parts of the country. 
This continued past Kuwait's independence until 1963. If he thinks I'm going to go and give him a weaponized system, I wasn't going to do it. I don't care about the money and I'm not going to care about telling him no. I didn't want to insult him. I said to him, listen, I need to check with my wife to see what her reaction is going to be. The next day, Manoug went to the Kuwaiti embassy to tell them he wouldn't be able to help because he was going back to the U.S. for his studies. So Manoug left the country for two years to study in the U.S., but before leaving, he and the group were designing the Cedar 3 and the Cedar 4. Webb and I sat together and designed two three-stage rockets, and Webb wanted to have that for Lebanese Independence Day. On November 21, 1963, they were able to launch two rockets, the Cedar 3 and the Cedar 4, from Dubai, about 40 minutes outside of Beirut. The Cedar 4 rocket reached about 140 kilometers, or 87 miles, which is past the Kármán line. And the Kármán line is kind of like the boundary between Earth's atmosphere and outer space. It's about 100 kilometers, or 62 miles, above sea level, and... Anything past the Kármán line isn't subject to national airspace. And after launching, the rockets would mostly land in the Mediterranean Sea and a Lebanese Navy boat monitored this activity. By this time, Manouk had left Lebanon for two years to study in the U.S. In fact, if you see a a picture of the three-stage rocket, you will find our students on top of the rockets, putting them together. This rocket, the Cedar 4, was printed on Lebanon's postage stamps. When Manouk came back from the U.S. after obtaining his Ph.D., a student of his wanted to surprise him. We had tried a propellant, and I realized that was a dangerous one because it could very easily explode. So we put it aside. However, when I left, One of the students decided, when he realized I was coming back, he wanted to surprise me by having a rocket with that propellant ready when I got there. He went ahead and took it to the lab, and when he tried to uh, start it up, it exploded. He lost an eye, and he destroyed the entire uh, lab at the college. The student had lost an eye and had severe burns. And another student who was there and tried to help suffered from extreme burns as well. So when I got back there, back to uh, Beirut, I almost stopped the whole operation. I was going to say, we're not going to do this anymore. But the Lebanese Rocket Society continued. And shortly after they started to get more funding and support, they gained access to military-grade propellant, which allowed for higher rockets and safer fuel. As the Lebanese Rocket Society gained more and more attention locally and internationally, it wasn't always the good kind. And with Lebanon's geopolitics and the group's long-range rockets, the group went from a university science club learning about space technologies to a potentially international threat if these rockets were to become militarized. Throughout interviews over the years, Manouk says that though he has no proof, he felt that he was being monitored. His office was raided a number of times with papers shuffled in places that they weren't before. And one specific international incident was a changing point for Manouk. So the rocket we built and launched, the two-stage one, which 
I went as far as Cyprus and almost hit a British destroyer that was there monitoring what we were doing. They want to know what we were doing. And um, it was a, a highly successful one. And we even put flares on the second stage of the rocket so that those who were witnessing the launching could see how the rockets separate from each other because there are two of them together. It was at that point that I, by the way, I decided to leave and not build rockets in Lebanon. In 1966, he also received a warning from the U.S. Embassy telling him to leave the country, aware that Israel was about to attack Egypt, Jordan and Syria. It was one of the members, we'll call them cultural attaches. One of them is the one who said, you need to leave. There's going to be problems here, is the way they put it. And sure enough, by the time I got to uh, the U.S., the Six-Day War began. So they knew. So that year, just a few months before the 1967 Six-Day War, Manouk and his wife left Lebanon for good. All in all, Manouk led the way to launch 11 rockets. And three of these rockets, the Cedar-3, Cedar-4, and Cedar-8, crossed the atmosphere's Carmen line. They think America would have stopped them, but... Apparently not. They didn't stop Israel from attacking all the Arab countries, which was devastating. Our photographers, we used to come around and take pictures of everything we were doing. He was telling me that they had to get rid of all their pictures that they had taken of our rockets being launched. So I said, why? Why would you get rid of all the pictures? And he said, well, with Israel coming in, if they see rocket pictures in our house, they probably would have put me in prison or whatever. They were afraid to that extent. Luckily, Manouk had saved a ton of materials and clippings covering the Rocket Society over the years. I carried them with me from Beirut to, to the U.S. I have all the newspapers, magazines, and so on. And many of these materials surround Manouk in his office at the university today. He shows me around his office focusing on different photos and memories from that time. I'm looking uh, behind you. I see some uh, familiar yes. photos. Yes, some of the pictures. The newspapers are on the other side. I can move this slightly. Let's see if you can see the... Can you see that side of the wall? Yeah, a little bit. I the, see that, yeah. The Daily Star, Lorient, etc. Wow, yeah. I see the rocket there. I think that's the rocket. Yeah, all of these are rockets, all the stamps, <laughs> Lebanese stamps are there, yeah. Wow. When I left, the club dismantled. After a few weeks, people stopped talking about the Lebanese Rocket Society. So the Lebanese Rocket Society disbanded, with Manouk saying it was mainly due to international pressures. In an interview with Joseph Sfer from the Lebanese Rocket Society film, he recounts a conversation with President Fouad Shahab. He had asked the president why the group disbanded and if they had received pressure from countries to the west or south of Lebanon. And Sfer says the president responds from the south and the west and from very far places. And several years later, the Lebanese civil war started in 1975. And it seemed like the Lebanese Rocket Society had disappeared from people's collective memory. 
people just forgot. And with the war raging on, no one really had time to focus on space rockets. Decades passed until the late 2000s when two filmmakers stumbled on something that brought it back to life. We saw some pictures of a rocket in a book published by the Arab Image Foundation. This is Joanna Hajjitouma. She and Khalil Jrej directed the film The Lebanese Rocket Society, which was released in 2012 and played in theaters across the world. We ended up buying a stamp with a rocket on it. So we thought like, oh, this is really interesting. And we start asking ourselves questions like, uh, and ask, asking also people around us to, if they ever heard about a space project. And everyone was like, what are you talking about? They couldn't figure out why Lebanon had a postage stamp with a uh, uh, rocket on it. And they started looking, they couldn't find much information about it. Eventually, they found one or two magazines with my name on it. And they called me up and they said, are you the Manoug Manoogian who was in, in Beirut launching rockets? So I told them, yeah, it, it's me. And at, at the same time, I told them, listen, I have two huge boxes of newspapers and magazines that I had saved. And so Joanna and Khalil began looking into the details of the Lebanese Rocket Society, seemingly amazed at the eclectic story buried under Lebanon's history. They began looking into unlabeled archive films, reaching out to journalists from the time, and reaching out to public radio stations to see if anyone actually remembers seeing any of these rockets. In large part, their film put the Lebanese Rocket Society back on the map. So we decided to reconstitute the Cedar Four, the rocket that was on the stamp. This is Khalil Jrej, one of the directors of the film. The director stumbled on this photo album that was gifted to President Fouad Shahab at the time. And uh, through it, we were having for all the information to be able to rebuild the rockets. And uh, we thought uh, of this idea of doing a sculpture because the rocket society, even if we now have this film and we have some images, for a very long time, we didn't have a visibility. As part of the film and in tribute to Lebanon's small piece of space history, they created a replica of the Cedar Four, that rocket that was launched on Lebanon's Independence Day 57 years ago. This Cedar Four replica stands near the entrance of Hagazian University by the president's office. This is what I had seen from outside the university, wondering what this rocket was and why it was there. So people, even from outside the university, would be able to see it and to question themselves. Is it a rocket? Is it a missile? What, what, what is this? In addition to the rocket that they had put outside of Hagazian University, they also created a second Cedar Four rocket model. Remember, the Cedar Three and Cedar Four were launched on Lebanon's Independence Day back in 1963. They invite me to Sharjah to evaluate their mathematics program near Dubai. So the dean there said, before you go and evaluate the mathematics program we have, I want to show you something. Do you like to go to museums? I said, yeah, I like museums. I didn't know what, what he was talking about. By Sharjah, he means the Sharjah Art Museum in the United Arab Emirates. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go to watch museums. So I, he takes me there. And as soon as we got to the entrance to the museum at Sharjah, and there is an exact replica of the rocket, Cedar Four. 
I was so, I cried actually. <laughs> it was all painted white because if it had any markings of a military type, I wouldn't have been happy at all. But it was a rocket with beautiful white painting, nothing on it. And it showed that it was for for the art purposes, for space exploration rather than a war product. I was very glad to see that. Manouk has lived in Florida for around 50 years now, and in many ways he's still obsessed with space exploration. That feeling he got reading those comics and books as a kid growing up in Jerusalem all those years ago never really went away. At his job at the University of South Florida now, he advises a student club called the Society of Aeronomics and Rocketry. And since then, they've been launching rockets here in Tampa and doing very well with it. I'm very proud of them that they're able to do this. And I said to them, what is it that you want to do? And their response was, we'd like to launch rockets. I said, I don't know why that's important because my students in Lebanon did that some 50 years ago. So what is it that's new you're going to do? And they couldn't tell me what. I said, okay, I'll be your advisor provided one thing. You'll put a satellite in orbit. No student organization has done that yet. So that's where we're at. This episode was produced by Tamara Resamni with editorial support from Dana Balut, Zaina Duader, Alex Atak, and Nadine Jagir. Sound design by Mohamed Khayzat and Bella Ibrahim is our marketing manager. Kerning Cultures is a production of the Kerning Cultures Network. A big thank you to everyone who spoke to us for this episode. Manoug Manougian, Hedair Keleshian, Joanna Hajituma, Khalil Jrej, and Reverend Paul Haidusian. We also want to thank the directors, Joanna and Khalil, for letting us use footage from their film and for putting the Lebanese Rocket Society back on the map through their hard work and their research. And the track you're listening to is Ahmed Malik's album re-release by Habibi Funk Records. If you'd like to learn more about the Lebanese Rocket Society with some awesome visuals from this time, definitely check out Joanna and Khalil's documentary. It's awesome. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Thanks for listening. Until next time. They started making and launching larger rockets. Rockets? The group used Herar's farm. Herar. Herar. The group used Herar's. Herar's. The group used his father's farm. Okay, let's just do that.